It's a delight to be here. It's wonderful to see so many uh, people in the audience. I'm also pleased that I've got you relatively early in the day. <laughs> I'm, I'm a little concerned for some of my colleagues who might be presenting late in the afternoon. I trust that the caffeine supply in the, the back can, can keep us all going. Uh, before I, I, I start today, I want to thank my, my colleague and friend, Chris Shannon, for this invitation, for the opportunity to discuss uh, matters of mutual concern regarding Catholicism and history. I'm very grateful as well to Christendom College, to uh, uh, President uh, O'Donnell for his gracious hospitality. Uh, in one way or another, reflection on the relationship among my own Catholic commitment Catholicism in general and history has been a part of my intellectual life since I was in graduate school, which is rapidly receding into the ever more distant past, I'm afraid. The relationship between Catholicism and history is fundamentally important, it seems to me, for any Catholic, not least because, as we've heard uh, eloquently put by uh, Pr President O'Donnell in his talk, it's a religious tradition rooted in history. The central claims uh, of Catholicism cannot be detached from events alleged to have occurred in the early first century Palestine. I'm grateful then for this opportunity to discuss our shared interests today. The title of my talk, of course, is inspired by the phrase used to describe philosophy in scholastic thought as the handmaid of theology. Today what I want to do is to say something about how this notion might be adapted by Catholic historians in ways that are neither reducible to business as usual history by historians who simply happen to be Catholic, nor assimilated to some or other form of Catholic confessional history. The former seems to be not to be Catholic or to participate in a Catholic vision of history in any meaningful sense because there's no connection between a historian's Catholicity and what he or she does as a historian. Uh, this sort of professional bifurcation, or to put it more strongly, schizophrenia, seems to be the most common way in which historians who are Catholic get on in the historical profession. Certainly it is by far the, the conformist path of least resistance, and at a minimum it proves that at least some Catholics can also be outstanding professional historians, meeting all the criteria and expectations of the discipline. On the other hand, Catholic confessional history, which is perhaps the association that comes most readily uh, to mind with a phrase such as a Catholic vision of history, relies on assumptions and convictions that make it virtually certain not to gain a hearing among non-Catholics. So I am after something different, uh, some kind of third way. And I think we might get some help by reflecting on the long-standing Catholic notion of philosophy uh, as the Ancilla Theologiae. There's the pronunciation, Marcus. <laughs> My talk will proceed as follows. I'm a cradle Catholic, so of course I came out of the womb speaking Latin. <laughs> My talk is going to proceed in three parts. First, I will consider ways in which we might fruitfully appropriate for history the notion of philosophy as the handmaid of theology. Then I will discuss why, as a Catholic historian, as a Catholic historian, I avoid Catholic confessional history and approach the past as I do. And finally, I will say a bit about what history done this way might look like with reference to my recent book that, that Marcus mentioned just a moment ago, The Unintended Reformation, and how this approach can serve a Catholic vision of history 
without making the methods, interpretations, or arguments of a Catholic approach to history dependent on anything that is distinctively or substantively Catholic. And I expect over the next couple of days to see a significant bump in my sales on Amazon as a result of that. <laughs> no, there really is a purpose. I usually don't talk about my own work this explicitly, but there really is a, a reason for doing so, as I hope you'll agree by the end of the talk. To begin then, I want to talk first about philosophy as the handmaid of theology. There are at least two basic ways that we can think about this. First, we can start from theology and consider how philosophical categories are used not to try to demonstrate truths of the faith that are based on God's revelation, that is, on divine actions and self-disclosure in and through creation in the course of human history, but rather are employed as aids in the endeavor to understand those actions and that self-disclosure, their coherence and their implications and meanings for human life. Here, philosophy's role is to elucidate and to clarify in the service of theology. How do the truth claims of the faith fit together? How are the narratives and the language of the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament related to our understanding of reality and human life in general? Philosophy is here the source of categories and principles, for example, being, causality, nature, intention, responsibility, inference, non-contradiction, and so forth, that seek to understand rationally the truths of the faith in relationship to each other as far as this is possible. More broadly, such philosophical categories and principles seek to elucidate our comprehension of all things in creation in relationship to God, the most ambitious aspiration of traditional Catholic theology. We get a somewhat different understanding of philosophy as the handmaid of theology if instead we begin from philosophy as a discipline with its own proper autonomy and distinctive methods. As the handmaid of theology approached in this way, philosophy most importantly can and should investigate, for example, the nature of reality as such in metaphysics, the character of human knowing in epistemology, the nature of human beings in philosophical anthropology, and how human beings ought to live in ethics in ways that are consistent with the claims of the faith, but are not dependent on them. Some of the teachings of the faith are knowable apart from God's particular salvific, salvific actions through human reason, a position that in one way or another has been advanced in Catholic Christianity since the encounter between Christian faith and Greek philosophy in the ancient Mediterranean world. If Catholicism is what it claims to be, then philosophical inquiry about reality is simultaneously inquiry about creation, whether or not a given philosopher or scientist realizes that this is what he or she is investigating. This conception of philosophy as handmade of theology is closely related to that employed by Catholic natural law philosophers and by philosophers who conceive grace as a sort of revelation-based addition to a natural order that has its own self-standing, rationally intelligible autonomy. The truths of revelation studied by theologians tell the rest of the story, as it were, adding to what is accessible through reason and demonstrable by philosophers working on the basis of observation, evidence, and argument. Philosophical reason can suggest how the truths of the faith are not irrational, but rather the super-rational fulfillment of other truths that are knowable through reason alone, such as the connection, for example, between observation of the universal human desire for happiness and the Christian hope for perfect happiness in the communion of saints 
with God in heaven after death. By appealing to those aspects of the faith that overlap with and are accessible to non-Catholics, non-Christians, and indeed non-believers, and by arguing on this basis rather than through, say, evangelical witness, personal testimony, or appeal to tradition or authority, we ought to have a better chance of reaching, at least in a preliminary way, those who are open to argument, and perhaps of then leading them to consider the fullness of the faith's claims as an extension of what they have come to grasp through rational argumentation alone. We increase our chance of success if we can persuade those who we want to reach that there's something problematic about their current ideas or beliefs. Now, much more could be said about these two simple and schematic descriptions, and by this point you're wondering why is this guy talking about philosophy and not history, but this is a paper about history and not philosophy, so I'm going to leave those two uh, schematic descriptions there. I'd like to suggest, moving on, that to each of these conceptions of philosophy as the handmaid of theology, to theology, there corresponds an analogous conception of history. I'm going to say something preliminarily about how this is so in each case before proceeding to suggest how Catholic historians might employ these conceptions in potentially profitable ways, given the social and the cultural context in which we find ourselves in the early 21st century. First then, if we take our starting point from theology, we can ask historical questions, questions about the origins, development, and continuity of Catholic truth claims and the ways in which they've been understood as a form of intellectual history. No one who believes that Catholicism is true should fear this endeavor, but rather welcome it, just as he or she should not shrink from but welcome the search for and the use of philosophical categories that can demonstrate the coherence of the faith's truth claims. Philosophy is well-suited to clarifying and showing coherence. One of history's strengths is its capacity to show continuity and development. Historical continuity is, of course, critical to Catholicism as a religious tradition that makes authoritative claims both about God's decisive past actions, especially in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, and about the subsequent history of the church as the ecclesial body of Christ extended in space and time. And historical continuity has to be shown as far as possible on the basis of historical evidence, taking into account countervailing evidence and responding to skeptical questions if the claims are to be potentially persuasive to non-Catholics. With respect to the notion of development, which certainly since Newman has been a crucial corollary of claims of continuity, Catholics can and should say, for example, that the church teaches the gospel, obviously. But it is then incumbent on at least some Catholics with the requisite historical abilities to show how this is so, since it is often far from obvious how the universal claims of the faith in the present are related to its manifest variety in early Christianity, in the medieval Latin church, or in its post-Reformation expressions. Without serious scholarly work in the service of this imperative, the church's claims to continuity, and with them, its claims to authority, will be dismissed by non-Catholics. Moreover, the understanding by Catholics of their own faith will be impoverished and self-servingly simplistic. In a general sense, explicating the relationship between continuity and development was the project Newman pursued in his essay on the development of doctrine. In the 20th century, major figures such as Yves Congat and Henri de Lubac contributed to it as well in their respective ways. 
But in my view, this sort of enterprise of history as the handmaid of theology should be broader than that carried out by these theological giants, or indeed as it is pursued by uh, historical theologians in general. The reason is simple. As indispensable as doctrinal truth claims and theology are, Catholicism is a worldview, and it's a shared concrete way of life that cannot be reduced to an intellectual system. It is primarily about how one lives rather than what one knows. That is why there's no necessary connection between extensive learning and genuine holiness. Just as history is more than intellectual history then, the history of Catholicism must be more than a history of doctrine or theology. It must also encompass the practices, behaviors, and institutions that are no less a part of the faith than are its doctrines. If Catholicism is true, we should expect to find continuity in its development and shared features in its manifold expressions over time and across cultures as a matter of historical evidence. And this is, in fact, discoverable and what we do find to a significant extent, regardless of whether or not we are Catholic, if we are willing to look for it and are open to seeing it. There's nothing distinctively Catholic about the methods employed in seeing or even in interpreting the evidence for its continuity and development and its unity in variety. But we should not be surprised that non-Catholic historians would neither desire to see such evidence nor indeed seek it out to begin with. For various reasons, not least of which are the real life implications that impinge on one's desires, values, actions, and familial and other social relationships, non-Catholics have vested interests in arguing against and trying to undermine Catholic claims of continuity, just as Catholics have been concerned to provide evidence for them. In the West, this dynamic has been continuous since the Reformation. The, this contextualized reconstruction of Catholicism as history that is more than the history of theology includes evidence for many sorts of discontinuities. Again, whether or not we are Catholic, we must not ignore those if our accounts of the continuities are to be credible and not to seem an exercise in confessionally motivated selectivity and special pleading. The relationship between continuities and discontinuities presents important intellectual questions for history as the handmaid of theology, as well as subject matter for theological reflection in its own right. Some are doctrinal, others devotional, and still others disciplinary or institutional. Some are more important than others. In addition, the open-eyed and fair historical reconstruction of Catholicism as an intertwined set of practices, institutions, and doctrines inevitably discloses a great deal of evidence for Catholics' failures and vices. It provides evidence for countless perversions and abuses of the faith, even by Catholics' own terms, sometimes in deeply disturbing ways among members of the clergy and laity alike. But whatever else this evidence means, it paradoxically reinforces a central Catholic claim for which it provides additional evidence. The reality of human, human sinfulness is one of the, the essential teachings of the faith. So we should not be surprised to find it manifest in the history of Catholicism as a continuous developing tradition. Overwhelming evidence suggests that belief in human perfectibility is certainly a delusion, whether or not one regards it as a heresy. So that is one way of adapting the notion of philosophy as the handmaid of theology to history starting from theology. For obvious reasons, this is an approach much more likely to be appealing to Catholics than to non-Catholics, 
who, as I mentioned, are more likely to criticize than to want to explore continuity and development in the history of Catholicism. More likely to be attractive to a wider audience, and again, adapting a view of philosophy as the handmaid of theology, is an approach that instead begins from history as the academic discipline devoted to understanding the full range of human realities in the past and how they have changed over time to produce the world in which we live today. In principle, no aspect of the human past is outside the purview of historical analysis because human beings are temporal animals. Every human being who has ever lived has existed in a concrete, natural, social, political, and cultural milieu of some kind. This means that in principle, if not always in practice, everything human beings have believed, thought, and done, all their convictions, experiences, ideas, aspirations, actions, artifacts, institutions, can be studied on the basis of surviving evidence by historians, who rightly ask questions about the facticity of past people's lives, the intentions behind their behaviors, the consequences of their actions, and how the many interconnected domains of human life have changed over time. Because Catholicism is a major religious tradition that through a wide range of enculturations has influenced hundreds of different societies over 2,000 years, it has had a major impact on world history. As such, Catholicism as a complex object of study cannot be ignored by any historian seeking an accurate and adequate understanding of the past, because doing so would mean disregarding one of our world's major constituent historical influences. And to pay attention to Catholicism in history prompts questions about its relationships to all of the respective domains of the societies in which it has existed and continues to exist. Catholicism has had an important impact on world history in part because like other major world religious traditions, it is a comprehensive worldview that makes substantive claims about how human life ought to be lived. It provides a normative perspective from which to assess human desires, actions, ideas, and institutions. If Catholicism as a worldview is true, there is no way that historical research could disprove it any more than could philosophical analysis, the empirical study of human behavior in the social sciences, or the findings of the natural sciences. This means that all academic disciplines can serve in their respective ways as handmaids to theology, because all of them, with the possible exception of pure mathematics, and if there are any pure mathematicians in the audience, I apologize and am prepared to be corrected if I'm wrong. But with the possible exception of pure mathematics, all the other disciplines disclose truths in one way or another about creation. Catholic scholars and scientists should draw strength from this insight. It should be a stimulus to deepen their understanding of the faith in ways appropriate to their disciplinary expertise. The key issue then is figuring out how the findings and the inquiries of these academic disciplines, including history, are related to Catholic truth claims, and then how best to proceed intellectually and strategically, depending on one's questions and aims. If Catholicism is true, it is impossible for truth claims that flatly contradict it also to be true, for assumptions incompatible with it to be correct, for values antithetical to it to be good, or for behaviors directly at odds with it to contribute to genuine human flourishing. This does not mean that Catholicism has a monopoly on what is true, good, or right. 
all of which are what they are regardless of who espouses or enacts them, and which should be affirmed, acknowledged, and embraced wherever they are to be found, regardless of the culture, tradition, or individual in question. Nor is it tantamount to being able to show the converse, namely being able to demonstrate the truth of Catholicism on the basis of historical research and analysis. This is almost certainly a pipe dream. Historical Jesus research, for example, while immensely interesting and indispensable for being able to respond to certain sorts of critical challenges to the faith, has disclosed a substantial gap between what can be known about Jesus of Nazareth using historical methods and affirmation of the incarnate word that Christian believers worship as the Lord of history and creation. However, something one can do on the basis of history, as I will suggest further in a few minutes, is to show that based on a great deal of evidence, rejections of Catholicism in the making of the modern Western world have failed on their own terms in ways that Catholicism has not. That is, the foundations on which rival Western worldviews since the 16th century have sought to ground truth claims, providing alternatives to Catholicism as a basis for answers to questions about human meaning, purpose, values, and morality, give every indication of having foundered. Moreover, on the basis of historical analysis, one can also show that the de facto dominant views protected by liberal states and constantly reinforced through pervasive behaviors, institutions, and cultural messages, views and behaviors that are also antithetical to Catholicism, seem on the basis of considerable evidence and in combination with our ever more astonishing technology to be leading in seriously troubling directions. I am thinking in the first instance of global climate change in relationship to constantly increasing levels of consumer demand for more and better things that drive manufacturing that contributes to increasing levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, not only in North America and Europe, but around the world. That is the relationship between climate change and what for more than a millennium and a half was known by Christian thinkers as the deadly sin of avarice which has for more than two centuries, and never more than in the contemporary United States, been rechristened as universal and benign self-interest. No more than philosophy can history be the handmaid of theology by demonstrating the truth of the faith, which is almost certainly an aspiration doomed to failure, and perhaps even a questionable goal as such, depending on how one regards faith and its merits in relationship to reason. But it can serve as theology's ancilla by strongly suggesting that departures from Catholicism either fail on their own terms or lead to undesirable outcomes, even according to the criteria of their proponents. This is analogous to the ways in which philosophy can show that the truths of the faith stand in a supra rather than an irrational relationship to matters knowable on the basis of reason alone. Short of demonstration, history can suggest that rejections of Catholic teachings are unlikely to lead to good outcomes, whether because of abundant evidence that they have failed to deliver on their own aims, or because their consequences are deeply problematic, even according to those who champion the values and behaviors that lead to those consequences. Now, on to part two. Before I move on to say a few things about my book, I want to offer an interlude about why, as a Catholic, I approach history as I do. It is primarily a function of my judgment about the cultural milieu in which we are writing 
and a matter of strategy with respect to what it seems to me we hope to achieve with respect to our intended audience. Here Newman's remark from one of the appendices to his Apologia is apropos, Newman. Out of various courses, in religious conduct or statement, all and each allowable antecedently and in themselves that ought to be taken, that ought to be taken, which is most expedient and most suitable at the time for the object in hand. Translation, we need to be prudent and canny. If one is writing history for a Catholic audience, then leading with one's faith commitments and assuming them in one's analysis and narrative is not necessarily a problem. But if one is not writing only or primarily for Catholics or wants one's history to be persuasive, at least potentially, to more than Catholics, even if one is writing primarily with them in mind, then this is a most unpromising approach. One will justifiably be criticized for begging crucial questions on which one's history depends. Practicing Catholics constitute only a small minority of professional historians and academics more broadly, a function of uh, the underrepresentation of Catholics in the academy in general, which is attributable in part to the lingering effects of longstanding assumptions about the respective proper aspirations of clergy and laity. If one wants to write serious history that in principle could be persuasive even to those who might be antipathetic to Catholicism, one needs a different non-confessional approach. To assume that the natural world is God's creation, for example, or that human beings are made in God's image and likeness, or that the Catholic magisterium speaks authoritatively on matters of faith and morals, will carry no weight with readers who think God is a fiction. One must employ different means to try to reach them by examining and criticizing, for example, the assumptions and implications of modern atheism from historical and philosophical perspectives, as, for example, de Lubac did in the drama of atheist humanism. Postmodern perspectivalist Catholic arguments about the ideological character of secularist narratives and liberal assumptions can be useful as criticisms capable ex of exposing the non-neutral of still often unquestioned beliefs and values that remain dominant in the secularized academy. But as such, they are no different from other perspectivalist arguments, and they must be supplemented if one is going to persuade readers, for example, why they ought to adopt a Catholic perspectivalist view rather than, say, an evangelical Protestant one or a Nietzschean constructivist one. Maybe they like those better. Why should they adopt the Catholic one? In addition, they have the same liability as traditional confessional history. By relying on substantive Catholic views, they are almost certain, ab initio, to alienate those one would like to reach. And again, they invite accusations of begging fundamental questions, such as those about the reality of God, objective moral norms, and non-relativist views of human flourishing. What we need then, in my view, is a way to avoid such accusations and the likelihood of turning away those we would like to reach. We might think of this as a form the new evangelization could take among educated non-Catholics, including those in the academy. As Aquinas recognized, any potentially successful argument requires some common ground, some shared premises between oneself and those you would like to persuade. Otherwise, there is no basis even for discussion or debate. The respective parties simply disagree with no prospects of convincing the other, rather like we've seen among many members of a Congress in recent years. 
how then to proceed. Rather than assuming in any way that Catholicism is true, we should bracket without relinquishing, but bracket our abiding conviction that it is, and we should start analytically by treating it and all of its rivals, other religious traditions, secular philosophies, post-religious substitutes for religion, as though each of them might be true. There's nothing distinctively Catholic or confessional about being open-minded and fair in this way. Yet this is already a significant departure, I would contend, from the de facto stance taken by most professional historians toward religion. Like a majority of academics in general, most are conditioned by pervasive modern assumptions to regard all truth claims of revealed religions, regardless of the tradition involved, as somehow having been superseded intellectually and therefore not to be taken seriously as a viable worldview in the present. The Academy's default is to conflate and confuse particular personal and contingent unbelief with what has supposedly been uncontroversially demonstrated on the basis of reason and evidence and is now accepted, of course, by all educated persons as a matter of common knowledge. We should instead use reason and evidence to show the lack of any demonstration, including the inconvenient reality of present-day sophisticated intellectuals who, alas, happen still to be religious believers. We can and should then endeavor to reconstruct on the basis of surviving evidence and as well as we can all of our historical protagonists, ideas, values, and actions in our particular purview with exactly the same methodology and sensitivity. We should relentlessly seek to understand and represent them in a manner such that we have every reason to think that all of them would recognize themselves in what we say about them. Injecting confessional commitments at this stage, too, is not only certain to be counterproductive, it is unnecessary. A more promising strategy is to get our readers and colleagues to accept our starting point, that all historical protagonists should be treated with the same reconstructive charitability and sensitivity as an expression of the open-mindedness that is supposedly characteristic of intellectual inquiry. No historians want to be accused of imposing their own views on the past people they study. I can guarantee you that. And that doesn't matter whether they're Catholic, Protestant, Jewish, or secular. This encompassing reconstructive method is the best way to try to ensure that we do not privilege any of our subjects' respective commitments, nor impose our own in ideologically distorting ways. Importantly, though, it also brings Catholicism into the realm of active consideration about what might actually be true. Rather than accepting the Academy's dominant prejudices and relegating Catholicism to the category of superseded pre-modern worldviews. If others refuse even to consider that some religious truth claims might be true, regardless of their own personal convictions, we can justly accuse them at this stage of anti-intellectual bigotry and a dogmatic unwillingness to reconsider their own beliefs based on evidence and argument in a manner exactly analogous to the accusations often directed against religious believers by secular rationalists. Regrettably, we will not be able to reach anyone who adopts such a position so long as they continue to hold it, but that is not an indictment of our assumptions, methods, or approach, but rather a function of their principled stubbornness and closed-mindedness. One simply cannot persuade someone who is not open to argument. Once we've done this sort of methodologically consistent, patient, reconstructive work, we should then analyze the commitments and the claims of the respective protagonists 
with the principle of non-contradiction in mind. It is a simple yet crucial point that not all the conflicting religious and philosophical claims historically reconstructed or available in the present can be true when they flatly contradict each other. All of them might be false, but it is impossible for contrary claims both to be true. There's nothing, again, specifically Catholic about basic logic. Everyone who argues clearly and coherently about anything already assumes the principle of non-contradiction, regardless of their moral and metaphysical views. So we shouldn't have to argue with people to get them to accept that. Just by arguing, they already do. If Catholicism is true, one corollary is that incompatible ideologies logically must be false at every point at which they contradict Catholic claims. Catholics should therefore expect and look for evidence that suggests as much. If Catholicism is true, we have an investigative advantage over non-Catholics, who of course will not be looking for evidence of the falsehood of non-Catholic ideas and claims, including their own. But if Catholicism is true, the evidence will be there nonetheless. And our Catholicity will enable us to see it more readily than someone who has countervailing interests and therefore is not seeking to find it. If we take everyone we study with equal care and sensitivity on their own terms, but the terms of anti-Catholic rivals have demonstrably not worked as intended, we in effect let Catholicism's competitors do themselves in on the basis of their own assumptions. In other words, the bases on which the antagonists to Catholicism rest their truth claims, bases taken to constitute an alternative foundation to and to justify the rejection of Catholicism will not bear scrutiny. These failures will not demonstrate the truth of Catholic faith. Again, in my view, this should not be the goal either of history or philosophy as the handmaid of theology. But the problems will strongly suggest that there is something fundamentally wrong with the putative bases of those who reject Catholicism, a kind of problem that Catholicism is able to avoid because its truth claims have a different basis. This would be a significant point in favor of the presumptive truth of Catholicism in comparison, at least, to its rivals that exhibit these problems, arrived at on the basis of no explicitly Catholic claims and strictly on the basis of the interpretation of historical evidence and the principle of non-contradiction. It is, of course, possible that a reader who accepts the approach and follows the argument will nevertheless not embrace the Catholic faith. To do so requires grace and more than reason can demonstrate, including a willingness to open oneself to the possibility of conversion despite the personal complications and the professional costs that so often accompany it. But if reason employed in historical reconstruction and analysis as the handmaid of theology has done its job well, certain kinds of very widespread answers to questions about meaning, purpose, morality, and values will have been shown to be problematic in powerfully suggestive, albeit not entirely conclusive ways. Hmm. By now I am sounding like a hopelessly abstract egg-headed academic. So I'm going to make it more concrete by talking in a self-involved way in an academic promoting his own book. Okay. For the last part of my talk, I'm going to make some of these ideas more concrete by saying something more about my book, The Unintended Reformation, as a work that embodies this conception of history as the handmaid of theology. 
The book gestures toward the first of the two approaches I talked about here, namely starting from theology and investigating the continuity and development of the church's teachings, practices, and institutions, mostly between the late Middle Ages and the present. It does this in a way intended to be matter of fact, even banal, about the continuities, while simultaneously acknowledging discontinuities, development, and variety over the past six centuries. This is the only quote from my book you're going to be subjected to. Page 13, for those who are keeping track of the introduction. Central truth claims and related practices of medieval Christianity as embodied in Roman Catholicism have never gone away. These claims and practices have persisted to the present notwithstanding the dramatic transformations of modernity and the many influences of early modern and modern human realities on Catholicism. I do not think these continuities about papal authority, the efficacy of the sacraments, the nature of the church, and so forth, are especially controversial. Indeed, many of them are precisely among the reasons why critics of the Catholic Church reject and denounce it. Continuity and development between the first century and the high Middle Ages is assumed but not pursued in the book. My aim was not to cover the entire history of Christianity, but rather to explain the historical formation of the combination of hegemonic institutions and heterogeneous ideological commitments that are characteristic of the Western world in the early 21st century. I have said repeatedly in public, orally, and in writing, and I'm about to say it once more here, that the unintended Reformation is not a work of Catholic confessional history. That is, in keeping with what I've said today, it does not presuppose any substantive Catholic faith claims. I wrote the book this way just as I write all my history because I wanted it to be accessible and potentially persuasive to open-minded readers regardless of their beliefs, based on the interpretation of the relevant evidence and the strength of its arguments. At the same time, the book is, I think, an example of history as the handmaid of theology in the second of the two ways about which I've been speaking. Namely, it starts from history with an eye toward understanding the past and its transformations over time in ways that have produced the world we inhabit today. Because its focus is on the Western world, it begins with medieval Latin Christianity, which of course was overwhelmingly the dominant religious tradition from Iceland to Poland and from Scandinavia to Sicily. I do not exclude in advance the possibility that some religious claims might be true, just as anyone who is unprejudiced should do. And so I enlist the sensitive reconstruction and understanding of Catholicism and its rivals, most importantly, Protestantism and modern philosophies, on their own terms. And then I examine the empirical evidence of the outcomes. This serves the book's primary goal of explaining the distinctive combination of dominant institutions and ideological commitments characteristic of the early 21st century as the long-term unintended product of attempts to address the doctrinal disagreements and the religio-political conflicts of the Reformation era. As part of the story, the exposition also strongly suggests that Protestantism and modern philosophy have failed on their own terms in ways that Catholicism has not. Yet, without the interpretation of the evidence or the historical analysis depending in any way on whether Catholicism is true. The book is thus confessionally neutral historical analysis that is nevertheless consistent with and indirectly supportive of Catholic truth claims. One consequence is that even if Catholicism were to turn out to be a bundle of illusions, 
the book's historical analysis would not change at all. This, I think, is a huge advantage over any sort of Catholic confessional history given the culture of the academy and of our wider society. Let me expand a bit. This is self-indulgence on top of self-involvement. <laughs> I know some of you have read the book, so I hope this will not be too tedious or boring. The principal aim of the book is actually quite simple and straightforward, though it is ambitious. It asks how are we to account in the Western world for the combination of hegemonic liberal nation states, market capitalism, and hyper-pluralistic truth claims about matters of meaning, morality, purpose, and priorities that marked the early 21st century in Europe and North America. In order to explain where this came from, we have to go back historically to before these institutions and this ideological heterogeneity existed, namely back to 15th century Latin Christendom as a locally variegated, institutionalized worldview encompassing widely shared Christian beliefs, practices, and institutions. Some of the phenomena analyzed in the book, univocal metaphysics, the control of ecclesiastical institutions by non-ecclesiastical authorities, capitalist practices, for example, were already underway prior to the Reformation. But they were decisively transformed by it because the Reformation marks the beginning of doctrinally contentious socially and politically divisive disagreement about meaning, values, and purpose that have never gone away between the early 1520s and the present. These disagreements have rather been transformed and expanded. Institutions have been created to contain their disruptive consequences. Some readers have alleged either that I have downplayed late medieval doctrinal divisions or exaggerated Protestant heterogeneity, but these, frankly, are misguided claims that the historical evidence will not support. Note that none of this is dependent on my Catholic commitments, and yet, it seems to me, it fits within an understanding of history as the handmaid of theology that serves a Catholic vision of history. Nor are my Catholic commitments in any way responsible for or implicated in the interpretation of the Protestant Reformation in the book. The insistence on scripture alone as the sole authoritative basis for Christian faith and life is not my doing, but rather Martin Luther's by the time of the Leipzig Disputation in the summer of 1519, and that of other Christians who rejected the authority of the established church at the time. Nor does the observation that this insistence yielded socially and politically divisive, incompatible readings of the Bible, beginning already in the early 1520s, have anything to do with my or indeed anyone being Catholic. The same goes for the fact that there were no authorities shared among Fisiparous Protestants who could resolve their disagreements that Lutheranism and Reformed Protestantism are the great exceptions of the Reformation because alone, among all the non-Catholic interpretations of scripture, only these forms of Protestantism, like Catholicism, enjoyed sustained political support from secular authorities. And that supplementary criteria intended to resolve exegetical disagreements among Protestants, such as appeals to the inspiration of the Holy Spirit or to reason, in fact had the effect of increasing the unwelcome doctrinal disagreements they were intended to overcome. Now, none of this proves that among all the divergent and rival interpretations of scripture among Protestants from the early 1520s until the early 21st century, that all of them are mistaken and none is correct. One of them might be. But it does strongly suggest that there is something amiss with the foundational principle of scripture alone as such that it cannot and never could function as its advocates wanted it to. 
that the Bible does not interpret itself, that it, the claim that it needs no interpreter is contradicted by the evidence of half a millennium, and that those who nevertheless maintain their respective Protestant interpretations of the Bible are doing so on the basis of their own individual preferences. It is obvious why Protestants would not like these arguments, but the claim that there's something confessional about them is quite misplaced. I might also mention that multiple Protestant reviewers have praised the book, and indeed, it received the inaugural Aldersgate Prize for Christian Scholarship from Indiana Wesleyan University. So too, analogously, it is obvious why secularists would not like the book's argument that modern philosophical foundationalism since Descartes has failed in a similar way. Reason alone, apart from any appeal to tradition or authority, has shown itself incapable of yielding consensually persuasive answers to questions about meaning, morality, purpose, and human priorities that became so consequentially contested beginning with the Reformation and which modern philosophy sought to overcome. But there is nothing Catholic in pointing out that Descartes, Hobbes, Spinoza, Leibniz, Locke, Voltaire, Rousseau, Hume, Kant, Hegel, Marx, Husserl, add whoever you want to the list, analyze their philosophies as much in detail as you like, that all of them disagreed in fundamental ways about the most central questions they sought to answer, and which it was the task of reason alone in modern philosophy to answer. It is now widely recognized that modern philosophical foundationalism has failed in its central ambition to provide a rational, consensual answer to the bases for morality, politics, or social life. Just as, which, as with Protestantism, every intervention during the past four centuries that has sought to overcome the unwanted disagreements has instead augmented them. Now, Analogous to Protestantism, it is possible that some philosophical system among these competitors, or perhaps one yet to be articulated, might actually be universally true, requiring recourse neither to authority nor tradition. But the apparently insuperable problem is that there is no way to determine which one it is that avoids the perpetuation of round and round arguments that show every sign of being endless. This is, of course, what Alistair McIntyre recognized in After Virtue, specifically about moral arguments based on modern philosophies. The rational conclusion, the rational conclusion, rational because based on the evidence in ways that depend not at all on one's own beliefs, whether Catholic or otherwise, the rational conclusion is that it is irrational to go on thinking that reason alone can function as those who championed it as an alternative to religion since the 17th century thought it could. Those who continue to defend one philosophical view over against others do so not, as Jonathan Israel imagines, based on something inherently more rational or persuasive, but rather based on their own unself-evident beliefs and arbitrary preferences. The failures of scripture alone and reason alone to function as their respective protagonists have sought namely as offering consensually persuasive answers to unavoidable human questions about how people should live, what they should care about, the meaning of their lives. None of this demonstrates the truth of Catholicism. But here again, the point is not dependent on my or anyone else being Catholic. It is clear to anyone who takes the time to investigate the issue that Catholicism avoids the problems of Protestantism or modern philosophical foundationalism. It prizes scripture, faith, and reason, but not separate from one another, and critically importantly, not separate from the church's tradition 
and what Newman called a living authority. What the history of the past half millennium of the West suggests, again, it does not demonstrate it because it cannot do so. And all religious traditions, including Catholicism, could turn out to be illusions. What it suggests is that an authoritative tradition is necessary for the articulation of an intellectually coherent, universal answer to questions about morality, meaning, and purpose that avoids the preferential arbitrariness of alternatives protected, nevertheless, within the laws and institutions of liberal modernity. There is no question that the magisterium of the Catholic Church, no less since Vatican II than before it, continues to make such claims about its authority as the caretaker of just such a tradition. Such anti-relativist assertions are exactly one of the things those who despise Catholicism often find repugnant about it. But understanding the coherence and the continuity of such Catholic claims depends on taking the time and expending the effort, again, regardless of one's own convictions, to, to assess the evidence for them. And that depends not only on history as the handmaid of theology in the first sense that I discussed above, namely making the case based on historical evidence for arguments about the continuity and development of Catholic doctrines and practices, it also depends in part on Catholic scholars and scientists in all other disciplines, finding the intellectually appropriate ways to make sociology, psychology, physics, evolutionary biology, literary theory, you name it, serve as handmaids to theology in ways that can show how their respective intellectual inquiries and findings are related to the truth claims of the faith. Until and unless Catholic intellectuals, and certainly not only professional theologians, are willing to do this in serious, visible ways to push back against the idea that Catholic truth claims exist in a mutually antagonistic relationship with widely corroborated scientific knowledge and cutting-edge research across the disciplines. Until and unless we do this, we should expect the persistence of the deep-seated, hostile assumptions antithetical to Catholicism that are pervasive in the academy and central to Western modernity in general. The onus is on Catholic scholars and scientists to make the case, beginning from their respective disciplines and areas of expertise. One final point to consider. Some critics have uh, argued that the historical analysis presented in my book, is in, it's a compressed form there, articulated much more extensively in the book, that the analysis is uh, persuasive, but the outcome isn't nearly as bad as I seem to think it is. That is, I myself am unjustifiably negative about our current situation and future prospects. Irredu irreducible pluralism about life questions, moral disagreements, political contestation, the enormous gaps between haves and have-nots are simply the unavoidable outcomes of liberal capitalist democracies, so this line of thinking goes, and they are prices well worth paying, given the rights our government protect, that our governments protect and the freedoms we exercise, the successes of our technologies, and the ever-increasing range of human possibilities and therefore choices that we enjoy, especially when compared to 20th century fascist or communist alternatives. Well, if these are the only games in town, I too prefer modern liberalism. I mean, that's a no-brainer. Protecting individual rights in consumerist societies is better than killing millions of people in the name of obviously much worse and more brutal ideologies. But are these really the only alternatives in principle in a dismissive review that ignored any of my book's uh, arguments, Mark Lilla pronounced McIntyre's thought, love the phrase, catnip for grumpy souls. <laughs> yeah, those of you who know McIntyre's work will 
The implication being, right, it's not the power of McIntyre's arguments, but the dour disposition of, of some of his readers who are attracted to his ideas. Now, as my wife will attest more than any others, I, I certainly have my days, but I don't think I'm especially grumpy. I am, though, deeply concerned about many aspects of the contemporary Western world, and along with numerous other scholars, I think McIntyre's analysis of our contemporary moral situation explains more than alternative analyses, more than Charles Taylor's, and certainly more than Mark Lilla's. Mindful of the necessity for common ground, for argument to gain any possible traction, I therefore articulated in my book's introduction three major realities about which I think many people are concerned, regardless of their beliefs. The appalling state of American politics and political discourse, global climate change, and moral relativism. People do not generally go looking spontaneously to change their worldviews. None of us desires the discomfort of having our most basic assumptions and convictions challenged. To have a chance of reaching others then, you have to try to persuade them there's something problematic about what they believe and why. You have to convince them that something is wrong despite their conviction that everything is fine. This means many readers are likely to dislike what you say. And this paradoxically, in proportion to your success, in not just getting them to agree with your starting points, but in what you do in subsequently making your case. As one senior colleague who, who will remain discreetly unnamed, who both admires and was annoyed by my book, said to me, he said, you know, with most history books, if you're right, we have to change something in particular about the past, something about our understanding of the state, a particular practice, the way an event unfolded, or so forth. He said, if you're right, people should change their worldviews. On one level, the unintended reformation is an argument about how present day realities regarded by very, a wide range of people as deeply troubling are the product of rejections of Catholic teachings. Here I am very ecumenical. There's something for almost everyone to find offensive about my arguments. <laughs> Catholics, Catholics, because of the countless sins without which the Reformation would likely not have become the civilization transforming movement it became, Protestants, because of the ways in which the divisive doctrinal disagreements and religio-political conflicts that followed on the Reformation prompted eventually the institutional arrangements that made the world safe for consumeristic capitalism and secularizing relativism, and secularists, because they continue to employ ideas and values drawn from Judaism and Christianity, such as human rights and equality, but without any rational justification for believing they are real, even while claiming to be the champions of reason among benighted religious believers. Could there be a better way, a Catholic way, of being human and pursuing the common good that avoids the disastrous effects of the coercion that was part of medieval Christendom and early modern Catholicism and that might emerge within the protection of individual rights afforded by modern liberal states and the respect for freedom of religion articulated by the Second Vatican Council? In principle, there could. It would involve individuals willingly and voluntarily choosing to embrace Catholicism as a Christian answer to the life questions, convinced that Protestantism and modern philosophy are inherently problematic, however personally satisfying in specific expressions they might be. It would also involve Catholics engaging much more successively and successfully and proactively in the self-discernment and ascetic self-discipline necessary to discard so much in themselves that has been absorbed from the wider culture but is antithetical to the faith. But because people are not likely to change their basic commitments unless there is something the matter with their own, we have to trouble the waters. We have to argue 
on the basis of evidence, to use reason in service to the faith, without, if we want to have a chance of reaching those who do not share our views, presupposing anything that is substantively part of the faith. Catholic intellectuals have a particular obligation here, as I mentioned, to find ways to make their respective disciplines serve as handmaids to the faith. I hope in this, what I hoped was a short but has become a 55-minute talk, that I've suggested an attractive and powerful way in which historians, for their part, can do so. Thank you.